Thanks to you at home for joining me this hour. Today, the Biden campaign released a memo outlining what they see as the state of the 2024 race so far. And the big takeaway from that memo is that Biden's campaign believes this will be a very close general election. Now, the memo only mentions Donald Trump by name twice, and it makes a point of saying that the Biden campaign is prepared to prepared no matter who emerges as the Republican nominee. But it's clear that this campaign memo is about beating Donald Trump. MAGA is mentioned 15 times in it. The plan, as it is laid out here, focuses on drawing a contrast between Biden and Trump and between Biden and MAGA extremism. We saw a little bit of that contrast in action today as President Biden visited Lewiston, Maine. Biden spoke in front of the just-in-time bowling alley, one of the two sites of the last, the horrific massacre last week that left 18 dead and 13 injured. I know consensus is ultimately possible. This is about common sense, reasonable, responsible measures to protect our children our families, our communities. Because regardless of our politics, this is about protecting our freedom to go to a bowling alley, a restaurant, a school, a church, without being shot and killed. President Biden has been calling on Congress to pass a new assault weapons ban and universal background checks and to strengthen red flag laws, all things Republicans oppose. But today, Biden's message was about asking how the nation might come together. What change could we all agree upon? That message, even just Biden's posture in general, stands in stark contrast to the way in which former President Trump responded to the shooting. On the night of the shooting at 9.58 p.m., Trump posted a short three-sentence message on social media calling the unfolding massacre a terrible situation. Just three minutes later, at 10.01 p.m., Trump had moved on. He had switched gears and instead congratulated the new far-right Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. And a few minutes after that, at 10.14 p.m., when news outlets across the country were clearly reporting this as a mass casualty event and an active manhunt, Donald Trump posted this video with the caption, Four. It shows Trump hitting a golf ball that is then edited to make it look like the ball hits President Biden over and over again. That is pretty much all we got from Donald Trump, not even a generic thoughts and prayer statement, just a video meme of Trump hitting the president of the United States with a golf ball repeatedly. So when it comes to the Biden campaign strategy to try and show a contrast between these two men, that should be fairly easy. And when it comes to the Biden campaign's plan to show a contrast between Biden and the MAGA movement itself, that too should be relatively straightforward. For example, this week, Congressman Ken Buck, a member of the Trump-aligned far-right House Freedom Caucus, Buck announced he will not seek re-election, citing his party's extreme election denialism as the reason that he is leaving elected office. Too many Republican leaders are lying to America, claiming that the 2020 election was stolen, describing January 6th as an unguided tour of the Capitol. One of the most conservative members of the House of Representatives is apparently not MAGA enough to remain in the Republican conference. Meanwhile, this was former President Trump kicking off a rally in Houston, Texas yesterday night. If you don't recognize that mashup of the Pledge of Allegiance and the Star-Spangled Banner, you are not to blame. 
It is a recording called Justice for All, featuring the voice of Trump himself and a choir made up of men who are in jail because of their involvement in the January 6th riot on the Capitol. Donald Trump does not refer to those men as rioters or insurrectionists or even just prisoners. He refers to them like this. Well, thank you very much. And you know what that was? That was, I call them the J6 hostages, not prisoners. I call them the hostages. He calls them the hostages, men who have been charged with crimes, including assaulting a police officer with a crowbar and chemical spray and trying to break a window of the Capitol building with a metal axe. To Trump, those are hostages in the American justice system. Hostages who Trump has said he would consider pardoning if reelected. Now, Trump is polling about 45 points higher on average than his closest competitor in the Republican primary. And he is doing a lot of the Biden campaign's work on his own, trying to draw a sharp contrast between himself and the rest of his Republican competitors. For instance, Trump is planning to once again skip the third Republican presidential primary debate in Miami, which is happening next week. Instead, Trump is planning to counter-program the debate with a rally of his own, just 10 miles from where the debate is being held. A Biden campaign official told NBC News today that their campaign will also have a presence in Florida next week. Among other things, the campaign is planning to place billboards around Trump's rally to counter-program the counter-programming. So that is part of the Biden strategy for 2024, a race the campaign itself predicts will be very close. And where, however unbelievably, Donald Trump is currently polling an average of half a point higher than President Biden in a head-to-head matchup. Joining me now is Pennsylvania State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta. He is a member of the Biden 2024 campaign's National Advisory Board. He also chairs President Biden's Advisory Commission on Advancing Education, Equity, Excellence, and Economic Opportunity for Black Americans. Representative Kenyatta, thanks for joining me here tonight. Always happy to. Good to see you. So let's talk about the strategy here. First of all, I mean, I have to ask you because you are in the state of Pennsylvania. President Biden has made eight trips to the state of Pennsylvania this year. He won it, of course, by 80,000 votes. It was I spent a lot of time there in the closing days of the election and even after. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you think he's doing in that state and how tight you think it's going to be. Listen, so Pennsylvania is, as I like to say, the center of the political universe. You don't get to become president of the United States without winning Pennsylvania. Uh, President Biden is going to win Pennsylvania again, I will tell you that. And I'm happy to see him. I think any time he is out, whether it's talking to farmers about his administration's really focus on small business owners from the farm to the to the corner stores in my district in North Philadelphia, whether he's talking about his investments in things like clean energy, whether he is standing up for our democracy in Philadelphia, where it was all born, he has a real story to tell, I think, from Pennsylvania to Scranton to Pittsburgh to Erie to Johnstown and everywhere in between. And so we're excited to have him. So you you focus on two communities, one, the the sort of white working class and one, the more urban black voter, both groups that Biden is clearly very concerned about showing up for him in November. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of manufacturing white working class. Mm -hmm. President Biden, first American president to walk a picket line with striking UAW workers. 
that is that is something I would imagine that matters in a state like Pennsylvania, where I think it's there are many manufacturing jobs still in the state. Union labor means something to the people of Pennsylvania. How significant was that move for on the part of President Biden to voters in Pennsylvania? You know, it is a big deal, but it's a it's one example of a long line of ways in which this president hasn't just said he's the most pro-labor president, but has actually proved it. I was just on the Lehigh Valley yesterday walking a picket line myself with UAW workers who build the Mack trucks, some of the best trucks um, in the entire world. And what you hear over and over and over again, and what I tweeted out about my, my march there, is workers are done being treated like crap. And to have somebody in the White House who's not just showing up and talking to working people, showing up for a photo op. You see it with a lot of Republicans, particularly those who run for Senate. They all find a bubble vest from the bubble vest company, I guess. (laughs) And with President Biden, people know that it's real that this is who he has always been. When we called him Scranton Joe, that's right. what he was talking about. Those workers who not only feel left behind, because that feels patronizing to say, who were left behind, but who aren't anymore manufacturing. Look at the jobs that this president has created from the CHIPS Act and on and on and on. You are seeing things built here in America. And one of those tech hubs we're going to also see be in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was also um, in other regional states where uh, folks who are going to benefit from the investments um, from the Infrastructure Act, also from uh, the American Rescue Plan. Time and time again, Pennsylvania has been a place where the president's agenda, you can see it on full display. And so it's no surprise that he continues to show up and talk about that record. Sorry to interrupt. There is there is a a broad belief that the president is not getting, especially among Democrats, that President Biden doesn't get the the credit that he is due for the policy that he has managed to uh, get through Congress, the, the, the executive actions he's taken that are directly benefiting Americans. A great example of that. In September, this is an AP poll, 76 percent of Americans favor Medicare, uh, allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. That was something President Biden shepherd, shepherded through. But the same poll finds only 48 percent of Americans approve of how Biden is handling the issue. That's true on a number of different issues. Why is that? How is this a race where in that average of polls, Donald Trump is ahead of Joe Biden right now? Listen, I think that there is an intentional effort, uh, your show not included, of folks who seek to minimize President Biden's accomplishments. They treat some of these things as wallpaper or if as, well, any president could have done it. No, I don't think any president could have put us in a position where we would be recovering from the pandemic better than any other industrialized country in the world. I don't think any president um, who didn't have the type of experience and understanding of how to get things done would have been able to put us in a position where we're seeing unemployment at record lows, where we're seeing real wage, real wages grow for the first time in forever. I don't think without having a leader with his type of focus and vision of how our economy should work in the first place would have been able to do what he did. He says it all the time. He has a focus on investing in working people in middle-class families 
and recognizing that when you do so, everybody does better. On the other side, you had a Republican Party who's made it very clear they have a very different vision. Their vision is if you give more and more money to the people at the top, the folks who are seeing record profits, if you just put more money in their pockets, maybe a nickel or a penny will fall out and hit a working person on the head. Literally trickle down economics, correct. just like the money has to fall from the pockets. But I have to ask you, I mean, we know that campaign has already begun in earnest outreach to black and Hispanic communities. They clearly think that they need to do some work, especially where young people of color are involved. And I got to ask you, what is it about the Biden sort of presidency that isn't resonating, given the good works that he has done, given the way in which Democrats are able to point to evidence about ways in which he's moved the country forward? I think we need to completely turn on its head that argument. You don't talk to voters just because you want something from them. You talk to them because you actually recognize you have to listen and then you have to earn their votes. And I'm excited to see a president and a campaign that's not talking to black voters and young voters the October before the election, as so often happens. I mean, this is a president who has made historic investments and Hispanic media and black media and having conversations about what he has done. Look at the issue of gun violence, for example. I was four years old the last time a major piece of bipartisan gun legislation passed in Washington. This president was a part of getting it done then. He was a part of getting it done again. Look at lowering the cost of insulin. You know, the first time you and I met, you were interviewing me in my district um, outside the Church of the Advocate in North Philly. And at that moment, I remember talking to you about why I was running for state rep. Mm -hmm. My mom rationed her insulin my entire life growing up. I lived six different places by the time I graduated high school. I think all the time the difference it would have made if my mom had to only pay 35 bucks for her insulin instead of the hundreds of dollars that she and so many others had to pay. Both of my parents passed by the time I was uh, 27 because they didn't have access to the type of health care that people deserve. And so for me and so many other folks, this is not hypothetical. It's not a game. And what I love to see is this president understands that black voters are a part of the coalition that elected him, but he's doing what too many people forget to do, which is to make sure that you're continually courting the people who brought you to the dance, as he likes to say, that you're showing them um, not only that you're going to lead on issues that matter, but also you're going to listen to them on things that we need to continue to do. And the last example I'll make on that is the child, the child tax credit. This president I know is going to fight like hell to make sure we bring that child tax credit back because we knew what the impact was. It lowered child poverty, cut it in half. And for families like mind, that makes a difference. And so he's taking nobody for granted, but he's also not getting distracted with the noise and the and the nonsense that we see from um, MAGA Mike and from Donald Trump and all these other people. Yeah, unfortunately, he's going to have to address MAGAism while also making the case for his not insignificant achievements first term in office. Malcolm Kenyatta, I love that you remember when we first met. It was it was, uh, it, was a, it was a special day for me too. And look look at us now. We did good. State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, member of the Biden campaign's National Advisory Board. Thanks so much for your time and thoughts. Anytime. Now I want to bring into the conversation Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for the New York Times. Michelle, um, the first thing I I just I want to get to something I was just touching on with Representative Kenyatta, which is this idea that Biden effectively has a two pronged approach here, right? At once, he has to remind the country of the darkness of MAGA on the horizon and its chief uh, principal architect, Donald Trump, potentially being the nominee. And, and then also sort of 
paint a more optimistic picture of what the country can be if he's given four more years in office. That seems like a lot of uh, high wire acting to do. Right. I mean, I think that the first part of that is going to be much easier because ultimately he'll have presumably Donald Trump to help him, Donald Trump and the rest of his acolytes in Congress. You know, we're not seeing a lot of Donald Trump right now. His fraud trial is being kind of preempted by the hideous events in the Middle East. But once the campaign really begins in earnest, you know, Donald Trump will be back in people's faces every single day, reminding people not just how, um, you know, not just kind of what a uh, grotesque figure he is, but also how much more radical his rhetoric is now, even than it was in 2016. And so, you know, I think that that will go a long way towards making the case of what a MAGA restoration will look like. The other part is really hard to give this country, which is so battered, so depressed, you know, so polarized, um, a sense of hope and optimism and forward momentum, you know, and especially because Biden, I think, has been a very good president. He's been a very good administrator, but he's not a great orator. You know, he's not the one who sort of leaves you in tears after the rally. Yeah. And I think the fundamental question on that front, Michelle, is how much Biden can leave the hard work of the, you know, the, the, the fire and brimstone version of America to Donald Trump, who is happy, it appears, to do it on his own, and how much he has to be a direct contrast to that, right? Like, you look at the reaction in Lewiston, Maine. How much can he he just kind of sit back and let Trump be a sort of post-empathy rage machine, and he can just act the part of the actual statesman in all of this? Well, I think that a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think that being able to act the part of the statesman to some degree depends on notching some more foreign policy successes because it's easier to act like I think the statesman when the world doesn't seem like it's on fire, even though I don't fault Biden for, you know, many of the ways that the world is descending into chaos. You know, but also I think that what he, you know, Biden represents or ran in 2020 on a return to normality. But I think it's increasingly clear that the pre-Trump status quo isn't coming back. And so what we need at this point is, you know, he talked about being a bridge to the future. I think that he needs to show more clearly what that future is, right, where that bridge is leading. Yeah. And he's got a Well, and he's also... <laughs> It, the numbers on American perceptions regarding his legislative accomplishments are just staggering, staggeringly insufficient, given how much this administration has actually gotten done. That is a big part of, you know, propo the proposal of the way forward. Michelle Goldberg, thank you, as always, for your insights. I appreciate thank you. you. Coming up tonight, we will have a deep dive into a major player in some of the most effective and extreme right wing lawsuits in America's courts a player who is reportedly on the shortlist for a much bigger role should there be a Trump administration 2.0. Meanwhile, we have some breaking developments in Trump's criminal trial down in Washington, D.C. We are going to bring you the details on that coming up next. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. 
Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. We have breaking news today pertaining to the gag order imposed on Donald Trump by Judge Tanya Chutkin, the D.C. federal criminal trial that she is presiding over regarding Trump's efforts to undermine the 2020 election. Now, a three-judge panel will hear oral arguments on this gag order in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, the appeals court issued a temporary stay on that gag order until the court can rule on its merits. And that means that, at least for now, Trump is no longer barred from publicly targeting court personnel or potential witnesses or prosecutors. Trump's team has signaled that it is very eager to continue litigating this, suggesting late last night that Trump's defense team may take this all the way up to the Supreme Court. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, thank you for being here to help understand the sort of net effect of all of this. Given the point, we know that the three appointees who made the decision today, the three judges were appointed by Democratic presidents. That shouldn't be an indicator, but these days it sort of maybe tends to be. Uh, what are the chances that, that the appeals court here finds for Trump, that they agree that this gag order is somehow censorial? I think very low probability, Alex. A judge can impose a complete gag order on the parties if they find it necessary to do that to ensure the fair administration of justice. You know, the classic case is the Sam Shepard case out of Ohio. You know, the doctor accused of killing his wife, which became a circus. And, you know, the, the, the court there held that if, if it's necessary to uh, prevent the trial from becoming a circus-like atmosphere, a judge can issue a gag order to maintain control over the case. What the judge in this case has allowed for Donald Trump is an awful lot of leeway. He can talk about Joe Biden and the Biden administration. He can talk about DOJ. He can talk about the case. He can even talk about the judge herself. He just can't target individual parties, witnesses, and jurors designed to protect the fair administration of justice. I'm a little surprised that they are uh, allowing Donald Trump to speak and staying this gag order in the weeks leading up to their oral argument in November. Uh, when Judge Chutkin did that for just a few days, Donald Trump jumped right back in and started talking about the deranged Jack Smith and going after Mark Meadows and William Barr. So uh, maybe they haven't been paying close enough attention. But I think when he gets a lift of this day for just a few days, he's going to be at it again. Yeah. I mean, and there's a, you know, not insignificant safety concern. It's not just that Trump gets to run his mouth. But I mean, in, in these moments where Trump is un, ungagged, if you will, people are find themselves in harm's way because of the things he said. I mean, I, I do wonder, could you could you get into a little bit more about how what the judge's thinking may be here beyond just they may not have been paying attention to the to the hazard caused by Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, ordinarily, appellate courts like to preserve the status quo while uh, a case is pending before it comes before them. And so sometimes that's referred to as an administrative stay. And I guess they see the status quo as the absence of a gag order. And so they will examine the order and decide whether it needs to be overturned or modified in some way. Um, but I do agree with your point about not just 
protecting the fair administration of justice, but protecting the safety of some of the individuals involved. You know, there's this phrase called stochastic terrorism, and it means we don't know exactly who or when uh, exactly it'll be, you know, maybe random, but when you make these kinds of reckless statements about people, there's a good chance that someone who is unhinged out there will take it as an invitation to do violence against someone. For example, when Donald Trump talked about the Mar-a-Lago search by the FBI and even accused the FBI of planting evidence, uh, within a day or two, a man in Ohio heard that as a call to action, went and tried to breach the FBI's office in Cincinnati with an assault rifle. That man ended up dead in a standoff. And so, you know, Caesar Syak, the pipe bomber, there are enough examples of this that someone can take the bait that this is a very real threat, not a theoretical one. Yeah. I, and then there's also this sort of practical implication in terms of the timing of these federal trials, right? We know that Judge Cannon down in Florida is presently waiting for her ruling on a new schedule for discovery that could push that trial potentially past the election. How difficult do these kind of deliberations make it for Jack Smith and the special counsel's office to stay on the calendar that's been outlined thus far? I believe March 4th is a federal election interference case. Uh, that's the one with Judge Chutkin. Uh, there's the Manhattan DA's hush money case sort of in between on March 25th. And then the Cannon case down at Mar-a-Lago, the federal classified documents case on May 20th. That is an abbreviated calendar, uh, Barb. How how much does do, do this deliberations here on the part of these judges make a difference in terms of keeping the time? Yes, it's it's very important. And in fact, the special counsel filed a really interesting pleading um, last night where um, they accused the Trump team of trying to manipulate the judges and sort of using them against each other. One of the arguments they've made is if one trial starts in March, um, they'll have to be in two places at once because they'll have to start the next trial in May. The special counsel said there'd be about five weeks in between the two trials. So it seems like things would be just fine. But one of the points they made is that they are sort of playing these two judges against each other and ask the judges not to be manipulated by Trump and his team by, you know, they're saying that they're asking for an extension in one because they can't be in two places at the same time. And yet they're asking for an extension in that case as well. Well, which is it? One of these trials ought to go in the spring. Um, and so I think that's something to, to keep an eye on. Of course, the, the best strategy for Donald Trump at all is to delay these cases until after the election in hopes that he wins and that he can dispose of them once he's in office. We got a lot to look forward to. Barbara McQuaid, thank you again for your time and expertise. Good to see you. Thank you, Alex. Much more ahead tonight, including an introduction. There's, there's someone I want you to meet. Someone whose legal work against liberal causes you are undoubtedly acquainted with, perhaps even personally. More on this guy, what he's been up to, and how his work impacts you. That's next. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 
Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. So this week, we found out that Donald Trump is reportedly preparing to fill a potential second administration with lawyers who will bend to his whims, despite what established law might suggest. The New York Times details that close allies of Trump are preparing to staff his White House with a more aggressive breed of right-wing lawyer, dismissing even the ultra-conservative Federalist Society in search of even more radical legal foot soldiers. Among that new breed of lawyers reportedly under consideration is this man. His name is Jonathan Mitchell. He was the chief architect of Texas's abortion bounty hunter law. That was the one that effectively encouraged citizen vigilantes to report abortion facilitators to law enforcement. And it took effect right before the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, the one overturning Roe v. Wade. Mr. Mitchell managed to effectively end abortion access in Texas, even when Roe was still the law of the land. And that Texas law was part of a broader legal ideology Jonathan Mitchell spelled out years earlier in a law review article, where he argued that legislatures had the power to overcome federal court rulings to effectively make an end run around the court's ability to block a law from taking effect. The New Yorker described it earlier this year. Mitchell's mission is to undermine the court itself as the final authority on the meaning of the Constitution. Now, in the end, of course, Jonathan Mitchell didn't need to undermine the Supreme Court to didn't under, need to undermine the Supreme Court to end national abortion access because the court's conservative justices were more than happy to do that on their own. But that didn't stop Jonathan Mitchell from trying to get those justices to go even further. When the Supreme Court took up the Dobbs case, Mitchell filed a brief arguing that the court should not only allow states to ban abortion, but the court should also allow states to outlaw marriage equality and consensual gay sex. Mitchell tried to further that homophobic agenda earlier this year by representing a Texas judge who refuses to marry gay couples. In the meantime, he has kept up his attacks on access to abortion in states that still allow abortion. Jonathan Mitchell is the mind behind a new county-by-county county effort in Texas to keep pregnant people from crossing state lines for abortion services, literally preventing those who need abortions from driving down certain roads. If Donald Trump is reelected, this is the kind of person who will be making policy in the White House while Trump works on his golf swing. This is the new breed of lawyer Trump and his allies believe will make a second term of Trump even greater than the first. In the meantime, the fight for reproductive freedom is still being fought at the ballot box. And there is one critical election that will determine the future of many of those freedoms happening in just three days from now. That story is coming up next. Next Tuesday, voters in the red state of Ohio will decide whether to establish the right to an abortion in the state constitution by voting yes or no on ballot issue one. It sort of seems like a fairly straightforward choice. But just a few months ago, in an August special election, more than 1.7 million people voted no on a different ballot issue one. 
That measure would have raised the threshold for changing constitutional amendments from a majority to a supermajority. Constitutional amendments like the right to an abortion. Just to be clear here, that August ballot issue one was an attempt by Ohio state lawmakers to make it harder to pass things like the upcoming November ballot issue one. And so if you voted no on the first ballot issue one, you'll likely want to vote yes on the second ballot issue one, which is happening this Tuesday. If you think that is not confusing enough, there is the language of the amendment on the actual ballot, the language that has been approved by the Republican-controlled Ohio Ballot Board. It states that the amendment would always allow an unborn child to be aborted at any stage of pregnancy, regardless of viability, if, in the treating physician's determination, the abortion is necessary to protect the pregnant woman's life or health. So, yes, it is not exactly straightforward here. Despite these intentional hurdles, abortion access advocates remain hopeful that the, that the <clears throat> concern that brought voters to the polls to protect abortion access in six states last year, that that concern will also rally Ohioans to vote yes to enshrining the right to an abortion in their state on Tuesday. And a recent polling would seem to bear that out. It shows 58 percent of likely voters are in favor of issue one passing and early voting numbers in Ohio are currently on track to exceed those in August. Now, the stakes here are high and they are immediate for people in Ohio. If issue one fails, state residents could face a currently frozen six-week abortion ban. And that's something the state's highest court could revive soon. Joining me now is Mimi Timuraju, president and CEO of Reproductive Freedom for All, formerly known as NARAL Pro-Choice America. Many, thank you so much for being here. This is such an important race. And there's obviously a lot of news that we don't get to every night, but this one is a really big deal. It is the first time, I believe, that a red state voters are going to be asked to vote yes on establishing the right to an abortion. Previous red state referenda have been sort of the inverse, which was... Um, not ending abortion access. This is a kind of affirmative access to abortion. How how much of a challenge is that in a place like Ohio? Well, Ohio, you know, has just been, as you've laid out, a cesspool of disinformation and misinformation. It's a great example of, you know, when you take an issue to the people, and as your poll, as the polling you just showed indicates, the majority of folks in Ohio support abortion access. But when it looks like we're winning in a red state, red, red controlled state like Ohio, folks like Frank LaRose and Mike DeWine pull out every trick in their uh, book to basically try to change the rules. We're seeing this playbook across the country, but nowhere is it more apparent than Ohio, first with the attempt to change the rules, then with the really problematic language on the ballot. And finally, with this latest round of ads that the governor has pushed out with his wife, uh, blatantly lying about what what this proposition does, and uh, ironically, uh, not addressing it with the press, and he's had very pointed questions about the six-week abortion ban that he signed that is so extreme it doesn't have any exceptions for rape or incest or health of the mother. So we are uh, 
in a state where the, I think the biggest challenge of being in a red controlled state is you have office holders who can really mess with the rules and mess with voters and push disinfo in a way that seems very official uh, because they're government officials. Uh, and it's disturbing. But the good news is, uh, as you indicated, we're feeling optimistic, cautiously. We're not going to take anything for granted. But the youth vote registrations have surged. Uh Attitudes on the doors from our supporters on the ground have been really positive. We're seeing a surge in volunteerism and we're feeling good going into Election Day. Yeah, you mentioned the chicanery, which has been off the charts. I mean, also to say nothing of having uh, uh, voters come out in August for a really critical uh, vote. That setting that aside, this is Bernie Moreno, who is a Republican Senate candidate. This is him talking about this amendment. Can we play the sound? As a dad of two girls, it's about having that girl be able to be raped and having the rapist force her to have an abortion all without your consent as a minor. That is insane. It is not representative of Ohio values. Okay, so the right here, I think, is trying to frame this as a parental rights issue and using the example of a girl being raped and being ordered to have an abortion by her rapist without informing her parents, which seems so nefarious, far-fetched, and, and, and largely unsupported by any facts, Minnie. Um, I, I wonder, you know, what this tells you about the broader concern on the part of the right that this is actually going to pass. Yeah, they're freaking out, Alex. I mean, it's really ironic that he says it sounds insane because he sounds insane. I mean, the examples they're coming up with are so wild. And the disturbing part, all, all, to be more serious here, is that the examples, the real life examples that are emerging from states with bans are dystopian and horrific. So that's the real problem here. What What's happening with this line of um, argument, though, about parental consent is, you know, they're desperately trying every route they can to whittle away at abortion support. You know, we're seeing um, we're seeing uh, claims that abortion uh, rights movement folks are supporting these that these language this language supports gender affirming care that parents won't have the ability to have any input. There's nothing in this proposition that has there's nothing in this ballot language, I should say, that has any impact on Ohio's parental consent laws. But they are so desperate and worried about losing. As I said before, they're lying. It's the same book playbook we're seeing um, in places like Virginia, where I'll be tomorrow with my team canvassing, where we're seeing Glenn Youngkin spend tons of money to lie to voters about what his bill actually does. It's the same thing that's happening today in Pennsylvania uh, in a contentious Supreme Court race that is all about abortion as well. We're seeing Republicans bend the rules. We're seeing them lie. We're seeing them use these really far-fetched, outlandish arguments when the truth is the horrendous, horrible stories are on the side of our movement, folks who are being denied care and, frankly, in dangerous circumstances as a result. Um, I won't even we didn't have time to get to the fact that the secretary of state purged 26,000 voters from the Ohio voter rolls two weeks before re voter registration ends. If you can't win, just make sure they can't vote. Mini right. Timuraju, thank you for your time tonight. As a reminder, the election is on Tuesday. If you are in support of enshrining reproductive freedom in the state of Ohio, you want to vote yes on ballot issue one. Thanks, Minnie.
When we come back, a judge in Colorado ponders whether Donald Trump is eligible to run for president in her state. We're going to talk to one of the witnesses against the former president. That's next. Did Donald Trump give aid or comfort to the enemies of the United States, and should he be removed from the ballot in 2024? That is the question in Colorado court this week, as a judge in Denver has been hearing testimony in a lawsuit that claims Trump incited an insurrection on January 6th and therefore violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. That states that anyone who swore an oath to uphold the Constitution as an elected official and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the U.S. or has given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof should not be able to hold federal or state office again. Among the witnesses who testified during the five days of hearings this week on Trump's side, Congressman Ken Buck, former Trump campaign spokesperson Katrina Pearson, and former Trump aide Cash Patel. For the plaintiffs, police officer Daniel Hodges, who was crushed in a doorframe by rioters on January 6th, and Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell, Democrat of California. He, of course, sits on the Judiciary Committee. Congressman Swalwell, thank you for being here. Um, For people who have not seen... For people who have not seen any of this um, hearing, can you explain a little bit about why you were called to testify? Well, as you mentioned, uh, the the case is essentially that because the president engaged in insurrection on January 6th, uh, he's ineligible to be on the ballot in Colorado. Now, uh, unlike Donald Trump, I can follow a judge's order, so I'm not going to talk about the merits of the case. uh, But the beauty here is that uh, an independent judge is going, you know, to weigh the evidence that was presented uh, and make a decision. And, and I think the greater issue here is that over the past couple months, actually in 2023, we have seen this tapestry of accountability come together uh, against Donald Trump for his prior actions. He's been a stranger to accountability his whole career. And as each thread is woven together, we've got a better shot at saving our democracy. And so, you know, whatever happens uh, in New York in the civil trial or in Florida with the documents case or Washington, D.C. with the January 6th case or the Colorado case or my own civil case that I have, the beauty here is he will not be judged under Trump justice where he declares he's the judge, jury and executioner. No, it'll be by a jury as a jury of his peers and an independent uh, jurist. And, and Alex, I promise you this uh, at the end of all of this, uh, when we come out of it, I don't think a single person is going to say, you know what? I think we were too hard on that guy. I think if anything, it's going to be we probably didn't hold him to account enough. I, I, I wonder, as an independent observer, what you make of these movements to get Trump off the ballot because of potential violation of the 14th Amendment. I mean, how much stock do you put in them? Michael Ludig, who is a conservative um, judicial expert and, and former judge, said today with my colleague Nicole Wallace that he thinks that this isn't going to be a state court thing. This is going to go to the Supreme Court, and they are the ones who are going to decide whether Trump can be on the ballot or not. I'll leave that to better experts. Look, I want to beat him. Uh, And we have beaten him since his best day was in 2016. And then he lost in 17 in some of the governor's races. He lost in 18 in the midterm elections. He lost the White House in 20 and the Senate. And we kept the House in 22. We added to the Senate and the red wave was uh, avoided. We've beaten his candidates in special elections. He's a loser. And and I'm I'm happy to beat him again. Uh, and, And again, I was asked to testify in this case. And I just told, you know, the story of what I experienced on January 6th, uh, I, I do 
personally believe he engaged in insurrection, but it's up to the judge to decide what that means. But I think Democrats should be confident that we can beat this guy again. We can bury Trumpism. And when we do that, we give democracy the best chance uh, of writing a new chapter uh, for America and just coming out of the you know dark place that he's taken us for so long. I do want to follow up on that because the notion of beating Trumpism seems elusive at best, right? This is a person who, we talked about this earlier on the show, is now running ahead of Joe Biden, our sitting president, by half a point. Granted, that is a very, very small margin within the margin of error. But nonetheless, a person that faces 91 uh, felony counts, a person who is implicated at best, uh, um, if not much far, far worse in the insurrection in the Capitol, still has a wealth of support. And do you think a trial is enough? Do you think taking him off the ballot is truly enough to rid the country of Trumpism? It, it all goes to the bigger issue here, which is he brings chaos. Democrats and Biden are bringing competence. MAGA extremism versus mainstream or, you know, just, you know, a record that President Biden brought of, you know, growing the economy out of COVID, being strong in the world and just bringing decency back. Look, at the end of the day, this is going to be a head to head uh, contest. And we really need to inspire uh, young people, Gen Z uh, and millennials, bring them up to the levels they're at in 22 and 20. uh, And we're going to win. But confidence begets confidence. Pessimism begets pessimism. So we have to be confident that we're on the right side of this and we will come out of it. Congressman Eric Swalwell with the optimism for the end of the week. Thank you, sir. That's our show for tonight.